And if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, found on page 1178 and 1179 of the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along there. In the evenings, we're studying Romans, which is, of course, Paul's great letter, his theology really of salvation, or what theologians call soteriology. Soter means salvation in Latin. Timothy is really his ecclesiology, that is, his doctrine of the church, his great theology on the church. So we are in 1 Timothy. It is one of three pastoral letters in your Bible. They're 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, written to two men, Timothy and Titus, who, whether they used the exact title or not, really were pastors. They really filled that role. And and really, ever since these letters were written, uh, when pastors read them, and I know that's been true for me, you feel that Paul is looking you as the pastor right in the face as he's writing these things. It has that effect, and so we're so grateful for that. Timothy lived not actually that far from Armenia, if you've been with us over the last few weeks. We've just come back from an Armenia missions trip to the west of Armenia, somewhere in what we call today Turkey. He lived. Uh, His mother, a Jew. His father, a Greek. Rabbi Paul came to his town and preached that Yeshua was the Messiah of Israel. And his mother and his grandmother believed in Jesus and became followers of Jesus. And at a fairly early point uh, from the book of Acts, we know the, the men of that early church in his town began to see something different in Timothy. And we have records, we'll get to this actually next week, that the elders of that church set him apart to ministry. We're told they laid hands on him. We call that ordination. And he became a minister. He then uh, went with Paul. He traveled with Paul around the world. And interestingly enough, and I think this often happens in life, he ended up coming back home. He ended up coming back to what we call today Turkey or Asia Minor. But instead of coming back to his little hometown where he grew up, God had him in Ephesus, one of the greatest cities of the ancient world, uh, home to the, one of the great wonders of the world, the temple to Diana or Artemis. And he is called there by Paul to really uh, subvert, to stop, to prevent the false teaching that is happening in the Ephesian church. Now, in our study of 1 Timothy, if you've been with us, you know the first three chapters are, are heavy on theology. Paul is really laying down what the church is to be, uh, what's gone wrong with the false teachers, why they need to be opposed. And, and last time, we noted uh, really at the end of uh, this section, which is the beginning of chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4, how Paul calls Timothy to be vigilant, uh, to be discerning or perceptive, and to resist. He reminds him that these things that are happening in the Ephesian church are actually demonic and that he is in this tremendous battle and he needs to be very aware of it and very uh, diligent in it. Well, in your Bible, and certainly if you're using the Pew Bible, this is the case, you'll notice that at the end of verse 5, there's a little space. And the, uh, the editors are trying to let you know that beginning in verse 6, we've really come to a new section of the letter. From this point on, most of the letter is direct application to Timothy. Uh, The pronouns actually change. The first three chapters, the pronouns are do this, 
think this way. All of you think this way. Now, beginning here in our verses this morning, the pronouns are you, Timothy, you must do this. You are to make sure that this happens. Now, if you're familiar with Paul's writings, you know this is Paul's method in all his letters. He usually starts with a section of theology. Here's what we're to believe. And then somewhere in the middle of the letter, he switches to application. And he begins to push that theology home and say, here's how that is to be lived out. Well, that's the section we're on this morning. In your pew Bible, the title of the section is A Good Servant of Christ Jesus. And you probably in whatever Bible you're using have something similar to that. And so over the next two weeks, we'll be looking at what it means to be a good servant of the Lord Jesus Christ for all of us, but especially in the context here for pastors within the church. With that introduction, would you please stand and we'll read God's word. I'll be reading to you this morning, chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, going to verse 10. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy, And deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we thank you for this letter and the other pastoral letters that you inspired Paul to write these things. And that you placed at the heart of what a minister is called to do, the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word. So we pray now, Father, that our hearts would be open, mine and the congregation's heart, to your word. That we'd be sensitive to it. That we'd place ourselves under the ministry of your word and be nourished by it. Correct us, rebuke us, strengthen us, encourage us, and build us up through your most holy word. For, Father, we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Pretty much every commentator, every pastor, every theologian agrees that there really are three uh, sort of sections within these verses. Of course, pastors love three-point sermons, but that's not why we have three-point sermon this morning. There really are sort of three lines of thought here in Paul. And I want to explore those with you this morning. But before I do, I just want to make a couple of sort of introductory points or points of orientation. Uh, First of all, uh, this week and next week, uh, as we look at these verses, really 6 through 16, I want to just point out that what is shown to us here is the ideal, the ideal pastor, the ideal Christian minister. And so as I'm preaching this, I'm um, completely aware, both pastors are, that we are not the ideal. Um, So as you hear me preach these things, please don't leave here and say, uh, well, Pastor Fisher got up and talked about what pastors should be. And the implication was he has fully arrived in all these areas. That is 
not the case. I chose to preach through these letters in part because I found them incredibly convicting um, and life-changing for me personally, and they remain incredibly convicting. I know Pastor Treskar would say the same. So as I preach these ideals, do not uh, get that thought in your mind that I am presenting myself here uh, fully finished. I am not. Second of all, as we preach over the next two weeks about the ideal pastor or Christian minister, I hope you will, and I'll be trying to help you with this, I hope you will be applying this to your life. Everything I'm going to say has application to all Christians at some level. Yes, Paul is writing Timothy. Yes, Timothy is a minister. Yes, there's a direct application to him. But for almost everything I say, and I I hope you'll see this, there are implications for parents, for teachers, for witnessing, for doing missions, for everything that God has called all of us to do. So please keep your ears open for those implications for your own life. Third, as we go through these verses, just real briefly, I I want you to notice with me God's priorities for pastors. There is a lot of confusion right now in the church about what we are, what we're good for, and what we're supposed to be doing. And I think these verses, and really the whole of the pastoral epistles, can be incredibly helpful in defining who we're supposed to be looking for to be a pastor, what we have a right to expect our pastors to be like, and how we as a church might set up their responsibilities and their roles to help them be who God is calling them to be. In light of that, I want to present to you this morning three things that I believe are here in this text very clearly. They'll be reinforced next week. Three things that pastors are to be. All Christians to some degree are called to this, but three things that are the focus are central for ministers of the gospel. And they are these three things. They are to be teachers, they're to be athletes, and they're to be farmers. And I'll explain each of those. So first of all, notice with me in our text that pastors, especially Timothy here, are primarily, centrally to be teachers. Look at verse one, or verse six rather. Verse 1 of our study, if you put these things before the brothers, if you do this, you will then be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Now notice with me what Paul is saying here. Pastors must be teachers of the word or what Paul calls here the good doctrine Teaching is not just one of many things they do. It is absolutely essential to what they are called to do. It is so central that without it, you don't really have a pastor. Now that teaching can happen from the pulpit or it can happen in a small group setting. It can happen in different settings. So not every pastor has to have a big pulpit presence. However, Paul here and throughout the New Testament He cannot imagine a pastor as anything less than a teacher. And he puts it very vividly in this verse, doesn't he? Timothy is only a good servant of Christ as he, quote, sets before the people these things. That is the good doctrine, the truths that Paul has been laying out. Paul especially may have in mind here 
the rich confessional statement we studied before, verse 16, the end of chapter 3, what he calls the mystery of godliness. In that one little verse, verse 16, you have the incarnation, the justification of Christ, his ascension, all this stuff, doctrine packed into one verse. And Paul sees pastors and ministers as teachers of this good doctrine. In just a few verses, Paul will command Timothy, this is verse 13, devote yourself, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. And among Paul's last words on earth, we have this text from 2 Timothy, his last letter, his, some of his dying words, Paul commands Timothy this way, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and complete teaching. So pastors must have teacher DNA. They must have teacher DNA, if I can put it that way. Good teachers are people who want, they have a desire to make things clear. They want their students to progress. They have a thirst to learn, but they also have a thirst to pass on that learning. In contrast, some scholars, you may know people like this, some scholars love to learn, but don't want to really teach others. Uh, many scholars make terrible teachers, writers, and pastors. They want to learn, but they're not drawn to the messiness of conveying that to students. Now listen, we, we need researchers. We need scholars in many fields. It's a great calling if God's called you to that. But that is not the calling of a pastor who is to be a teacher to give another example, uh, this is why I, I think both Pastor uh, uh, Trotskar and myself, why both pastors, we cringe a little, um, cringe a little when we hear of a church that has a pastor of administration or a pastor of music. Now, please don't get me wrong. I know that large churches may at times need people to fill those roles of administration, and I'm, I'm thankful for the gifts of administration that God has given his people I cringe, though, because scripturally, a non-teaching pastor is an impossibility. Pastors have a desire, a burning desire, to teach the Bible all the time, most of the time. They are teachers, so much so that throughout this letter, you'll notice not just here, but really through the whole thing, Paul makes Timothy's whole ministry contingent on this. Again, notice how our verse puts it. If you put these things before the brethren, if literally in Greek you establish this truth in front of them, then you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Only as Timothy fulfills the repeated call to teach and preach will he be a true pastor. The scriptures place teaching and preaching so central to the work of ministry that it becomes impossible to imagine a true pastor who is not also a passionate teacher in, at some level and in some place. Notice also under this teaching heading or teacher heading that Paul understands 
what makes teachers tick. Our professional teachers, we have several of them in the room right now, they already know this. They've talked to me about it over the years. The avid learners, people who love to learn, are usually the best teachers. Or to put it another way, one of the greatest thrills of teaching is that you keep learning. And notice how Paul captures this in the life of Timothy, what he wants for Timothy in verse 1. He says, if you put these things before the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. How is he going to do it? By being trained yourself in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. The word for being trained here is actually a word for eating or for being nourished. A good teacher is going out of him. He's going out and finding new information. He's growing in his faith. He's nourished on the scriptures himself. And as good teaching is going into him or her, they are taking that out. That's what a teacher does. And that's what a pastor is called to do as well. You can see here, once again, the teacher DNA. The picture of a minister who is always learning, always thriving, always growing upon the word, being trained and nourished on the words of faith and the good doctrine, and then is called to set those things before the people. Sinclair Ferguson once put it in a group of ministers he was speaking to. He said he reminded them that it was important that they, like the congregation, come under their own ministry. That they actually listen to their own sermons and grow by them because all the best teachers are also great learners. It's actually the first step in becoming a teacher. The great pastor and theologian John Stott once observed that when a minister or pastor stops studying, when a minister becomes bored with theology and isn't learning anymore and isn't studying anymore and doesn't want to take a study sabbatical and isn't really that interested and is really more interested in his hobbies, Stott says he will become a sentimentalist in his preaching. He'll depend too much on emotions and gotcha moments and eventually he'll just end up saying the same sermon over and over again. Here's how Stott puts it. He says, quote, he will depend on a repertoire of cliches and sappy stories that tug at the heartstrings. Teachers are kept fresh by their learning. So are pastors. One last thing before we leave this first point on teaching. Pastors not only want to teach others, students, but pastors always, always good pastors always want to make other teachers. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 puts it this way. Paul says, What you have heard from me, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Teachers, if you know some, you know this. Teachers love it when their students grow up to be teachers. They love it. You probably noticed that. And, and in just the same way, pastors love to see other men become pastors. They're not threatened by them. They're not jealous of them. They want to help them. They're excited when their students become teachers themselves. So pastors, like teachers in general, love to teach, they love to learn, and they love to train other teachers. The image of the pastor clearly emerges from Jesus' own ministry as a master preacher and from the ministry of all the apostles. And in these pastoral letters, 
Paul calls Timothy and later Titus to the same kind of ministry and makes teaching the hinge on which their whole ministry turns. It is essential that pastors be teachers. Now again, this applies to all of us, I would say, not just to pastors. Parents who are still learning, still growing in their faith, are honest about that, are going to be the best teachers of their children. The same is true for missionaries, church volunteers, Sunday school teachers, and countless other types of ministry. You know, the best Sunday school teacher is the one who every Sunday when they teach the kids, even when they're teaching them the the simple stories they've known for decades, they find something that grabs their attention, grabs their imagination, makes them think, and they're learning, and they love to learn with their students. And the great Sunday school teachers have that. And we can all have that. We're all called to that as we study and consider God. So whenever we do anything as a church, anything, probably notice this, we're always trying to teach. Everything we do is about teaching. Everything we do is about is learning. We do VBS. We're teaching them to memorize scripture and we're teaching them the gospel. When our young people get together, there's always a lesson. There's always singing. There's always teaching. When our college and career group gets together, we're doing theology. We're always learning. We're always teaching. When our missions team just went out, if you were here last week for their report, how in preparation for going to Armenia, they would meet and learn together and train together. That's because this is so essential to the work of a pastor, but it really is about the whole church and how we approach things. We want to grow in our faith. We want to learn. Churches then, to use The words of the Puritan, churches are to be schools of Christ, schools of Christ. And so Timothy and all who follow him into pastoral ministry must have teacher DNA. So first and foremost, we see that pastors are teachers and all that that, a little of what that means at least. Second, I want you to see that pastors must also be athletes. Look at verses seven through eight. Paul writes, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The word train here in verse 7 and in verse 8 is the Greek word you know for the word gym, the gym. Timothy is to mimic here the life of athletes by training himself to godliness. Paul often uses the image of an athlete to describe how each of us is to approach our Christian life. Having received the Holy Spirit by grace alone, we are now to work out our own salvation in the confidence that it is God who works in us. Philippians chapter 2. Now notice, this is not self-salvation. This is not us making progress on our own. Paul doesn't believe in that. But Paul is here speaking to those who've already received the Holy Spirit by grace alone. And he's encouraging Timothy to stir up the gift that has been given to him. So also, as the pastor is known as a teacher, he must be known as an athlete as well in this sense. 
Paul testifies that this was his own pattern of life and ministry in 1 Corinthians 9. He writes these words, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I, Paul, do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I don't know if you've ever considered this, but Paul, the Apostle Paul, must have had at least an interest in athletics. As we read his letters, he mentions various sports, and he uses these images repeatedly to call us to faithfulness. More than that, though, he imagines his own life through the lens of athletic illustrations more than once. Probably the most profound example of this comes in the very last letter he wrote to Timothy, the last letter he ever wrote. In 2 Timothy 4, he writes this. Listen to this athletic imagery. I have fought the good fight. There's the I don't box to hit the air. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Here in his last letter, Paul imagines himself once again as an Olympian who boxes the good fight and runs the good race and receives the laurel crown of victory from the true emperor who is in heaven. But of course, this training is incredibly difficult, isn't it? We don't often feel like sustained times of prayer and Bible study, do we? In fact, it seems that whenever we try to train, whenever we try to bring ourselves into discipline, there are always distractions. And so for many of us as Christians, it's just easier in the short term to live off junk food and sort of meet the bare minimums. I think Paul knows this about us, about himself. And so he gives Timothy here in our text two very important helps for his athletic pursuits, for his search for true godliness. First, notice that Timothy's training, just like athletic training, means he has to focus on what really works and not on junk. Look at what verse 7 says. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Of course, Paul is not opposed here. He's not opposed to Timothy knowing and refuting the false teachers. A pastor, a Christian, has to know enough about false doctrine that you can recognize it and speak to it. We need to know what's out there and have a response. But Paul is concerned, and I have to be honest, I'm concerned about a minister who spends all his time in the 24-7 news cycle, who spends all his podcasts railing against culture and has just immersed himself in everything that's wrong, understandably, but one has to ask, where is the time and the energy for godliness? And that's Paul's concern. He wants Timothy to refute false teaching, 
But he also wants to remind him, don't get lost in this as a minister of the gospel. Don't spend all your time doing this. Pastors must be careful when they feel the pull to become pundits or political commentators. Again, we need Christians to do those jobs. And pastors should have a reasonable understanding of what's going on in the culture and be able to speak to it. However, Paul's concern is that Timothy does not get detoured from his primary calling to train himself, to actually practice godliness himself. Paul's focus can still be heard in 1 Corinthians. There Paul writes, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. As athletes are focused and avoid distractions, so Timothy is to remain focused on the gospel and on holiness. The second help he extends to Timothy to help him make this sort of focused effort comes in verse 8 in the form of a promise of reward. Paul writes, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Again, Paul here is urging and using the image of the Olympian, a boxer or a sprinter. Their physical exercise routines are critical to success. However, this bodily training eventually fails as the person ages and even dies. It has value, that physical discipline has value, but it has value only in this life. Its value is limited. In contrast... Real godliness goes with you into glory. You know the old saying, you can't take it with you. Well, that doesn't apply to this. This is one of the only things that will go with you. There, the godliness that has begun here and is imperfect, there in glory it will be perfected. It will be built upon, not thrown away as useless And so it has lasting, eternal value. In one of his sermons, John Newton, a man you might remember wrote Amazing Grace. Uh, John Newton, one of his sermons, he put this verse we're looking at about the gain of godliness together with a verse in 2 Timothy 4. And here's what he said. Godliness is profitable for all things or in every view, having promised to support the life that now is, And, and I love the way he puts this, and to crown that which is to come. Paul even underlines the value of godliness in the very last lines of this letter. In 1 Timothy 6, we'll see this eventually. Paul writes, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Of all the verses uh, that have been personally convicting to me as I've read through these books, uh, none more so than 2 Timothy chapter 2. Here's how Paul puts it there. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself of what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Tired of scandals, tired of scandals, our denomination has recently strengthened 
the sections of our bylaws that call for godliness, or we might say athleticism, in the church's ministers and officers. We've reawakened to this basic simple point. The pastors of the church are not so much cultural commentators as they are to be godly men who teach godliness. And so pastors must be athletes in this sense. And the same should be true, right, for every Christian in this room. This whole section is a great reminder that Jesus is not just after our minds or our teaching or our words, but our very lives, even our thoughts and desires. An ungodly life will undermine and poison everything that you say. Your children, your Sunday school class, your neighbor will find it hard to hear a message you clearly do not really know personally. I say that because it is only only in the exercise of real biblical godliness that a person comes to know the gospel more deeply. Godliness is the gospel when it has sunk down into our lives. Like when you put a paper towel down on a spill and the liquid fills every cell of the paper towel and it becomes translucent. So godliness is the gospel filling every cell of our lives. And that is why Paul can call the gospel, just a few verses back, the gospel, he calls it the mystery of godliness. Godliness is not something after the gospel, detached from it. It is the gospel sunk into us. So the church father, Augustine, can say so beautifully 1,700 years ago, he says, the faithful, the faithful Christians must believe the articles of the creed. He means the Apostles' Creed, the great truths we believe, so that by believing they may obey God, by obeying may live well, by living well may purify their hearts, and with pure hearts may come to understand what they believe. Godliness is the mark that the teacher really knows his material, that he understands what he teaches and what he believes. Lastly, thirdly, in our portrait of the ideal pastor, Paul adds that he must be a farmer. Teacher, athlete, farmer. Now, I know that that exact word does not occur in our text anywhere, but farming is one of Jesus's and Paul's favorite metaphors for doing ministry, as you probably know. And it's really, I think, the best metaphor for unlocking the picture given to us in verses 9 through 10. Here's what Paul says. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God. Farming is hard work. My wife has farmers in her family. And one of the first things you notice about them is how their bodies and their hands are different than yours. Even with modern equipment, their hands are incredibly hard and their bodies simply look different because of the physical labor they engage in. I think this is what Paul has in mind when he tells Timothy, for to this end we toil and strive. 
Paul, along with Jesus, unapologetically presents to us pastoral ministry as really difficult work. The Bible does not hide that from us. It was not hidden from me. I was told. I have no excuse. He is not afraid. Jesus is not afraid. Paul is not afraid to call pastoral work toil. Toil. In fact, in Colossians 1, Paul uses this word toil repeatedly to describe his own ministry. This is Colossians 1, 28 through 29. Him we proclaim, he writes, warning everyone and teaching everyone, there's teacher, right? With all wisdom, that's athlete, I know the stuff I'm teaching, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What a calling. It's, it's huge. Everyone in the room mature in Christ. That's my calling. Pastor Trescott's calling. And he says this next, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I've heard it said that being a pastor can be the easiest job in the world or the hardest. If someone knows how to skate by and cheat the system, it can be easy in one sense. Very rarely is anyone looking over your shoulder. You're in your office a lot alone. It can be easy if you're unethical. There have been plenty of lazy ministers. But on the other hand, if you love it and you give yourself to it, it is incredibly difficult. Notice, though, Paul does not shy away from that. But there's another way in which Paul uh, tells Timothy to be like a farmer. Another way in which farming, I think, captures this work better than any other metaphor. Farmers are people who must plant in hope and wait for the harvest. Look at how Paul captures this so beautifully in verse 10. We toil as those who have their hearts set on the living God. We can't spend a lot of time on this today, uh, but I don't believe the verses that follow, who is the Savior of all people, uh, teach universalism, that God saves everyone regardless of whether you believe or not. That would contradict everything Paul writes everywhere else in the New Testament. And as we've already seen once in this letter, all people in Paul is usually a reference to all kinds of people, Jews, Gentiles, kings, those who are in authority, everyone. Remember that in context, the false teachers had stopped praying for certain kinds of people who they saw as irredeemable. And Paul has told Timothy, start up your prayers again for the whole world. Don't just pray for the people you think are savable. So I think that's primarily what Paul is doing here. And to make that clear, he writes and he adds, especially those who believe. That, unfortunately, is a bad translation. It's universally pretty much agreed upon now that that is not how that should read. It should read that he is the savior of all people. That is the people I'm talking about, those who believe. And the Greek word really does mean that, but it's it just carried on from the King James and we've left it. It's confusing because it sounds like what Paul's saying is he's a savior of all people and especially those who believe on him when it's really saying he's a savior of all people. And I mean by that, those who believe. But back to our farmer, back to Timothy. Pastors must be farmers because they plant seeds they rarely see fully grow, at least immediately. Remember, Timothy is working in a church. Timothy's in Ephesus. He's working in a church where Paul had sown or planted good seed. 
But an enemy had come in behind Paul and planted bad seed, just as Jesus predicted in one of his parables. Now, just as he had predicted, only, that is Jesus, only time will tell who's good seed, who's bad seed. But this is both going on in this one church. Timothy then must practice his ministry of godly teaching with the toil and with the hope of a farmer. Missionaries likewise go out in the hope that one day some of the seed will take hold. Today's toiling and striving is really about the day of salvation, the long-term results. Pastors and really Christian workers of all kinds who think this way will not easily give up on people. That's why we can't easily give up on them. Or on the other side, declare victory too easily just because the pews are full. As farmer, the pastor will keep toiling, keep hoping, keep waiting. Pastors must be farmers. And again, the same is true not just for pastors, but for all of us in the various ministries God has called us to. The obvious example here might be parenting. It is incredibly hard work. It is toil. I don't think I need to tell the parents in the room that. And yet the results do not show up for many years. We keep planting the seed. We keep toiling in the hope of God's salvation promises. Some parents wait decades for the seed of the gospel to bloom in the life of their children. The same can be true for any other ministry calling pretty much you can imagine. To do ministry, whatever the ministry God has called you to, you must have hope. It is the power behind all ministry. And the greatest hope we can have is that God is a savior and that he is calling people everywhere to come to him. In that hope we trust and in that hope we sow the seed. We share the gospel, we teach Sunday school, we volunteer. We just keep planting but only because with Timothy, we believe in a harvest day to come. The farmer toils, and the farmer hopes, and the farmer waits. And these are the keys to an effective ministry. When we realize this, the farming character of pastoral ministry, it can change, it should change, I think, what we want, what we expect, and how we train ministers. For example... For example, very few, very few businessmen should ever seek pastoral office. And we should not, we should not encourage pastors to develop a business mentality. Here's why. Because businessmen, and God made them that way, they're a gift. But businessmen need to succeed. They need to succeed. They need to do new things. That's how God made them. It's a good thing. God has wired businessmen to feed off of visible success. The numbers, they rejoice. Some of you are business people. Don't you rejoice when the quarterly figures are in? You rejoice because progress has been visibly made. That orientation, again, is a gift. It's not a bad thing. But the pastor cannot be consumed with what works or what's new. He isn't a franchise operator in Jesus' kingdom business looking to make his mark. He knows, the wise pastor, that most of the results will be hidden 
until that great day. He is slow to innovation, not because he's a stick in the mud, but because he realizes that Christianity is a set of faithful sayings and practices from which we must never drift. He looks at the long game. He is a farmer. Now step back with me. Have you gotten something, I hope, this morning of the picture Paul is giving here to Timothy of pastoral ministry? In our verses next week, you'll see these things I've laid out just underlined even more. So it's not just these few verses. It's the whole of these three letters. And this picture, I trust, will become brilliantly clear. Before us, then, is God's plan for pastoral ministry, teacher, athlete, farmer. Every Christian is to have elements of this in their life, but Timothy's calling is to build his work and character entirely around them. If the church of Jesus Christ could define the job of pastor more clearly, maybe we could begin to identify men who are called and also be more clear about what we want from them what their role should be. Some years ago, and this was a number of years ago, full confession, I did look at a few other churches. Um, There are a lot of reasons for that. I wasn't unhappy here. I love it here. And by the way, I'm going nowhere at this point, but this was years ago. Um, I was happy, but I was just thinking, I was praying and what God had for me. And I remember reading a few applications from churches that they had written about their next minister. And a few of them read like this. Such and such a church seeks a man who is an A-plus preacher, A-plus teacher, A-plus administrator, A-plus organizer, A-plus Christian counselor, A-plus evangelist, and so on. And I was tempted on many occasions to write back, Dear sirs, I think you are looking for the risen Christ. (laughs) Now, I am so grateful I am so grateful that grace is not like that, not at all. And I want to commend you for that and just reinforce that this morning through the teaching of God's word. This church has done a wonderful job by the grace of God alone in knowing what pastors are for and encouraging them to stay in their lane rather than do everything themselves. The Bible does give us a clear picture of what pastors are to be about. God has given us the characteristics of their work and the makeup of their persons. The image is given in Paul's letters, especially in these three pastoral epistles. But more vividly, more vividly, the ideal pastor is given to us, isn't it, in the person of Christ. The office of pastor today is not random or accidental. It is modeled after Christ's own pastoral ministry. Jesus, free from sin, could have built the most influential business ever. He could have built an empire of businesses. He could have written the most beautiful music ever, music the world had never heard before, rivaling Mozart and Bach and Beethoven. He could have locked himself in a monastery and written the most illuminating volumes of all time. But instead, he took the form of these verses. He took the form of a pastor. 
That doesn't make pastors better than everyone else. That's not what I'm saying. It just means that of all the things Jesus could have been, all the ways he could have functioned, he came to us in the form of a pastor. And he did this for you and he did it for me. He is our forever pastor. He is my pastor. And oh, how I try his patience and sleep during his sermons, but he still loves me. If you are a Christian here today, you are under his pastoral ministry. You are his parishioner. Today then, as you ponder these things, think with me about how wonderful it is to be under the ministry of a pastor whose knowledge, patience, and love is truly limitless. Good pastors, if you have found us, Pastor Trescar and myself, to be good pastors, then understand that all we do, all we do, is carry his love letters from him to you. I grew up singing these words almost every day of my life, and I want to close with them. They're words that are true for me when I was a little boy, and they're just as true today as a pastor, and they're just as true for you if you are a Christian under his pastoral ministry. I am Jesus' little lamb, ever glad at heart I am, for my shepherd gently guides me, knows my needs, and well provides me, loves me every day the same, even calls me by my name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how can we thank you for the pastoral ministry of Christ, his love unchanging in the face of our changeable hearts, his kindness boundless to his people, his toil all completed, his work finished. He is the pastor of our lives and hearts. He alone can be with us. He alone can hold our hand as we die and pass from this life to the next. He is the pastor above all, and so we worship him today. Give to your people this morning a sense that even now, as a good shepherd, he watches over them. And give them the hope of his reward, his coming, and of all his joys, for they are under his ministry We pray, Father, do these things, that we might be encouraged in the midst of all our struggles. For we pray it in that great pastor's name. Amen.